Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Kathy. Yes, Tobin. You know how everyone is obsessed with Marie Kondo and, like, condoing their homes? Yeah, I take issue with that because I love Marie Kondo, but I was way ahead of the game. Me, too. My sister told me about this book years ago. Mm-hmm. She found the book and loved it and then told me that I needed to get this book. And all she told me was that it's in Japanese and translated and it's super short. So I downloaded the life-changing magic of tidying up. Uh I pull it up on my e-reader and all I see is like a page of random sentences in front of me, like what is cleaning? And so in my mind, I don't know if I was tired or if I just wasn't thinking. I was like, oh, okay, this is the book. I'm supposed to like think about what these mean. So I did like maybe two minutes of contemplating. And then finally I'm like, wait a minute. And I click my e-reader, and it's the table of contents. Oh, Tobin. (laughs) Tobin. But then I condoed, and now I have twice as much stuff. (laughs) (laughs) From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your host, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Too. So, Kath. Yes. I don't know about you, but I find myself sort of clinging to any good news about queer media. Yeah, it's been a pretty brutal month for queer media. Into, which is this great site that reported on queer issues, was just shut down, Mm -hmm. and BuzzFeed fired most of their LGBT reporters. Yeah, and the future just seems really uncertain for a lot of queer publications. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think recently you and I were both intrigued to hear that Philip Picardi was going to take over as editor-in-chief at Out Magazine, the longtime gay men's magazine. I think some people were surprised by the move. Philip is probably best known for helping transform Teen Vogue into one of the most talked about magazines in the country. Then he started Them, which does great reporting on queer stories. Right, and now he has jumped ship for Out. He said he really wants the magazine to be more inclusive of POC folks and trans and gender nonconforming people. And his first issue as editor-in-chief dropped last month, and it already feels like he's shaking things up. So we asked him to come into the studio to talk a little bit about where he sees his place in queer media. But first, we talked to him about growing up gay in a devout Italian Catholic family and what he learned about hard work from his first job at a McDonald's drive-thru. Philip, thanks so much for joining us. We're so excited. You're wearing a beautiful floral print sweater. I sure am Andy Warhol Florals by Calvin Klein. Thank you. <laughs> this is already the fanciest interview we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about your career, but okay. we're going to like back it all the way up because um, you've talked before about how at age 14 – your dad surprised you by dropping you off at McDonald's for a job you didn't know you had? Not only did he drop me off, he actually made my whole family get in the car. There are five children and two parents in my family. And he made everyone get in the car to basically watch this happen because he thought it was, like, the funniest thing ever. He knew the guy who, like, owned this, like, franchise of McDonald's and forged my signature on child labor paperwork in the state of Massachusetts. What? And then dropped me off at work. And I, I thought it was a joke. 
And he was like, this isn't a joke. Go ahead, kid. And I, there I was starting my first day oh uh, my ever God. working at a McDonald's. Was your family your first customers? My family was not my first customers. They drove off, actually. <laughs> 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 now that you mention it, um, I don't remember who my first customers were. I met a lot of really interesting um, regulars at the drive-thru and people who like to come in, you know, for meals and stuff. Um, mm. McDonald's was a fascinating experience. Very formative one, actually. How was it formative? What did you learn from working at McDonald's? So there's a phrase at McDonald's, or at least at the one that I worked at, that goes, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean. And McDonald's is like this amazing... Um, in a perverse kind of way, microcosm of American capitalism in the sense that everything is about efficiency and they have ways to monitor efficiency throughout and then they incentivize you for being the most efficient employee. And so you're always competing against each other when you work in some of these fast food chains. And so they would be able to like measure you based on like after your drive through shift, how many napkins you gave away and if you were like contributing to waste by like giving away too many free things. What? And so anytime we were all just like kind of fooling around and actually that was the summer of Cat DeLuna's song, Wine Up, um, okay. which which is like an amazing line up. It's an amazing song. Um, I literally was caught on video because they watched the tapes the morning after. And I just did like a little like burlesque routine to the song Wine Up in the drive-thru window for my coworkers. And they played it for the whole staff the next morning. And then it was like this whole thing about like make sure he's busy. And so I was always <laughs> having to clean things. <laughs> So then, like, your dad just dropping you off at McDonald's, is that like a microcosm of your relationship with your father? It for sure is. <laughs> that is 100% accurate. Um, and I'm comfortable saying that because I know for a fact he will not listen to this interview. Um, <laughs> Fair, he, enough. Fair enough. The thing is, my dad was always harder on me. I have four siblings. Um, three brothers, one sister. My dad loves my sister, treated her like she was like enclosed in this like bizarre, like invisible shrine that no one could see except him <laughs> always her whole life. And then the rest of us were kind of like a gamble. Um, but my other brothers are all straight. They're, you know, mostly for the most part, like extremely hyper-masculine, almost like stereotypes of straight men. Um, mm. My oldest brother was a football player. My second oldest brother was a hockey player who almost went to the Olympics. But ever since I was a kid, my dad always kept me kind of at this like arm's length because I was like playing with Barbie dolls. And anytime he would send like set me up for sports or whatever, like I would like show up to like baseball practice and like horseback riding pants instead of like regular baseball <laughs> pants. Like I was always mm -hmm. just trying to like assert my gayness everywhere I went. And he had no idea what to do with me. And so none of my other siblings were actually forced to work um, during high school or college. I was the only one. Mm. Um, and so he basically felt like because I was so feminine that I was like too precious and he didn't want me to get this like air that like I was above it. And so um, he was often you know, using his power over me to, like, assert his authority. And in particular with the work stuff, I'm mostly actually really grateful for it. There's, like, a lot of stuff that, you know, I've talked since talked to my dad about and one day I'll maybe talk to my therapist about before writing a <laughs> memoir that will turn into a motion picture. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that I'm grateful for the work ethic stuff because it, it has really fueled me in a really interesting way. Another element of growing up that you've talked about before is that your dad is very Catholic. Yes. And you were also raised Catholic. Yes, I was. So <laughs> I'm wondering, 
When did you realize that Catholicism was going to clash with your sexuality? So my dad was so weirdly Catholic. Like, this is not like go to Sunday school and go to church once a week Catholic. Like, my dad would go on these trips on the weekend with a bunch of monks and take a vow of silence for a weekend, okay? So when I say I grew up Catholic, I am not talking about, like, your normal Sunday Catholic who, like, sometimes wears pastels. I am talking about, like, (laughs) my dad, when my little brother and I were swearing, showed us a clip from The Exorcist, okay? Like, that is the level that we are talking about Catholicism. It was perverse. Like, you know, some kids have the boogeyman. We had Lucifer. So, like, (laughs) that was what we were scared of. (laughs) Wow. It was deep, you guys. It was deep, deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, as, you know, you kind of go through the steps of, like, self-discovery in terms of, like, using the internet and finding out, like, she's not doing it for me, but he is, you know. (laughs) I start to come to grips with the fact that I, this is not something that I can hide or repress anymore. This is not something that is avoidable. This is just who I am and how my body is wired. This is me and I'm going to need to somehow find a way to come to terms with this. So when I was a kid I used to, like in this summer right before high school, I would go downstairs and I would r- watch old episodes of Queer as Folk mm-hmm. on on demand and then I would delete them from the history so my dad wouldn't see them. But I used to turn the TV on to its lowest volume and then sit right in front of the screen with my hand on like the power button just in case anyone was coming downstairs. Mm-hmm. And that, like watching that show really did something for me. So I basically... Um, I used to pray every night and one time I was doing these prayers and as I came to terms with my own sexuality and was like actually proud about my sexuality or trying to figure out how to be proud, I felt like it was hypocritical of me to pray all of a sudden or like God wouldn't be there, wouldn't listen to me. Like I felt shame Hmm. even though I was trying to figure out how to be proud of myself. Um, And so one night when I was trying to pray, I couldn't do it. And so I like marched into my parents' bedroom in the middle of the night. I think it was 2 a.m. And I just kind of really loudly declared, like, I have something to tell you. And my mom like turned around and she was all nervous. I think she probably thought I was in trouble. And I was like, I'm gay. And, you know, like typical Italian-American women all over the country, my mom just can cry on command. And so she starts wailing <laughs> oh. and arguing with me, you know, the whole thing. And then my dad rolls over, and he's a big guy. So he, like, he rolls over, and I can hear him rolling over. It's dark because I didn't want to turn the lights on. And he goes, wait, what just happened? And so then I had to come out all over again. Oh, no. And tell him <sighs> that I was gay. And the agreement that we landed on was that I would see a therapist before having these conversations in the future with anyone else. So, like, it was, like, our little gay secret. Hmm. Um, And then, you know, they took me to a Catholic therapist, and by that point, I was just like, whatever, bitch, there is nothing you can say to me that is putting me back in this closet. Um, Wait, how old were you then? I was 14 years old. Wow. Yeah, Catholicism was, um, was a through line for me in terms of, A, coming out, how I was raised, and then also, like, what fueled this, like, very antagonistic desire I had to, like, be brazen and bold about who I am, especially in opposition to people like my dad was at the time. Hmm. Yeah. What about what about now? How are you and your dad now? We're good now. You know, my dad is—it's hard. Like, my dad is a product of his environment, and mm-hmm. he grew up 
in a very patriarchal household and, you know, even in our culture of just being, like, Italian-American folks, like, men are expected to behave a certain way and he was brought up to take care of the family. He was brought up to think that women were supposed to take care of the children. So we have five kids in my family. Like I've said before, my dad never changed a single diaper, right? Um, And so what I think my dad has come to terms with most recently that's been really encouraging is, like, he called me right before I took this job and was basically like, you know, I want to make sure you're taking care of Darian, who's my boyfriend. And I was like, "What? Well, Darian's fine, Dad. Like, why? <laughs> and he said, well, you're just so focused on your career. And one thing that I regret about my life is that I focused too much on my career and I wasn't there enough for you guys. Wow. And so he was like basically trying to tell me, like, don't lose this one, right? In oh. his own way, in his own, like, annoying, condescending way. Um, and so we've had that conversation since, which has been really nice. And and now I feel as though there's, because of what I've accomplished in my career, I feel like I have more bargaining power at the table with him where he sees me as a man mm. um, because I have gained some sort of, like, what he deems like notoriety or importance. And so because of that, I feel like I have more respect in his eyes. So when I say things to him about how I'm feeling or how he makes me feel, I do feel like he listens. And that's kind of the difference about being a teenager or a kid versus a fully grown-up adult, you know, who doesn't rely on, on him for, you know, financial support. So you eventually ended up at Teen Vogue, um, and you had this distinction of being Anna Wintour's protege. Um, And for people who don't know, Anna Wintour is the editor-in-chief of Vogue, and she's sort of this, like, legendary editor that I think a lot of people are intimidated by. So I guess our question is, like, what is it like to be her protege? Yeah, what is it like to be a protege? You know, (laughs) I—so I'm called her protege sometimes, and— I do not know that we ever called me that personally. So I don't want to speak for her. She's a very important woman. She is incredibly fierce and and not in the fierce way, like snap in a Z formation, but in a fierce, like she is dogged in her determination. And so she is also terrifying. Like she is larger than life. She's an icon. You know, it's like her walking into an office or walking on my floor literally would make people stop in their tracks, turn the other way, run away. You know, not any of which is her doing or her expectation. It's just that people, you know, think all of these things about her. And so she's, uh, I guess she's accustomed to how people react to her, which is an interesting experiment in and of itself. But I remember after the election, um, right after Donald Trump was elected, so Teen Vogue was at the office that night. All of our staff was, I think, until 3 in the morning, if not 4 in the morning, just because, like many newsrooms across the nation, we were not preparing for Donald Trump to win our presidency. And so we had to basically pivot at the last minute and everything that we had saved for this, like, this momentous occasion of, mm. of women assuming the presidency, we actually had to throw away and then figure out how we were going to cover the person that we'd been essentially telling our audience was not going to represent them well, um, was going to become the president. So it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and we I think I'd barely gotten four hours of sleep when my assistant called me and said, Anna wants the whole team on the 25th floor at 9 a.m. sharp. And so, like, I have 20 minutes to get ready, 20 minutes to call my whole team, and 20 minutes to get everyone in the door. So we all rush in, and I'll never forget this, but, like, we all wait in total silence because everyone was very mournful that day in the building. 
And she walks in, python boots, Prada dress, sunglasses on, hair snatched for the gods. And she keeps her sunglasses on and she said, there's an article about me that came out today that insinuates that I went too far in my support of Hillary Clinton in this most recent presidential election. And so I'm here to tell all of you that if supporting women's rights, reproductive justice, immigration, and LGBTQ equality means going too far, I hope you all go too far every single day. And then she just walked out. No questions. No time for even a reaction. She finished her sentence and she walked out. We came in at 9 a.m. Oh, my God. For one, for one sentence. And then she walked out and it fed us for the rest of the time we were all employed for her. You know? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was major. And that spirit and, like, who that was in that room is who I worked for. She was nothing short of a hero to me every single time we were together. Coming up, Philip talks about his fears for queer media, and we ask him about the recent controversy surrounding Out Magazine failing to pay freelance contributors. That's after the break. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. I think it's fair to say that you grew up in a middle-class upbringing. I would say upper middle class. Upper yeah. middle class, okay. But then you like quickly ascend into like this upper echelon of like fashion and beauty mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. A place that I don't understand. <laughs> just, just to put it out there, I don't get. What was the process like of becoming comfortable in that sort of like high fashion, sort of glossy world? Oh God, I'm still not comfortable. I I just went to for the first time in my career to an ent- what we call the circuit, which is you start in London. And then you go to Florence, and then you go to Milan, and then you go to Paris. That was the first time that I've ever done that. And basically, there were people who would come up to me after shows and be like, can I just say that watching your face was better than watching the clothes? Because, like, I was so excited to be there. I was like, yes! I'm at Fendi. I was, like, sitting with my fashion director. We were, like, cuddling in the front row because we couldn't even believe it. Like, I'll never forget being, like, literally pinching each other in the backseat of the car after the Prada show being like, did we make it? Like, did we do it? Like, are we actually here? Have we arrived? Does, Does this count? And it was wild. So I don't feel comfortable in these spaces yet. Fashion is designed to make you feel like you never belong, Mm. you know? And I think that knowing that and having some sort of self-awareness about that makes it a lot easier to be able to, like, sit front row at Louis Vuitton and, like, watching Alton Mason doing backflips down the runway and, like, not being afraid to scream and cheer and clap your hands like all of the other, like, jaded people in the front row who are, like, sitting there, like, stone-faced. You know, it makes you see the fun in fashion because you felt forever like you would never be able to reach this. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Fashion designed to 
make you feel like you don't belong. Yes, yeah. What does that mean? It's it's the sense that luxury, the world of luxury, that you always need to attain something else. That the world of luxury, because it shrouds itself in mystery, that like you can't really belong, right? Because they profit off of you not belonging and buying more to belong. Can you tell us about a time as you're like as you've been discovering your sense of fashion and love of fashion that you feel like you made a fashion mistake? Um, <laughs> it depends on who, who you're currently talking to, but my fashion director, Yashua, would probably say I'm making a fashion mistake every day. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I first interviewed for my job at Teen Vogue, I wore a V-neck Zara t-shirt with a zipper on the shoulder. Okay. And I had the night before doused myself in the fake tan. And I uh-huh. blew my hair up straight with gel. So it was like this big, beautiful blowout, like Polly D from the Jersey Shore, <laughs> and waxed my eyebrows with a waxing pot I kept in my dorm room. Um, and because I liked them to look like extremely well done. Um, yeah. And I, then I wore a, like, obliterated my face with makeup and put on the tightest jeans I owned and a pair of loafers and then walked into my interview. Did you get a look from the person interviewing you? I did. In fact, the person who hired me later told me he didn't want to hire me because of how I presented. <laughs> but his assistant told him that I had good writing samples. And so to hire me based on my work and not the way I look, which imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So you made a name for yourself at Teen Vogue, um, sort of like revamping that brand. And you got a lot of attention for it. And I wonder if that was a lot of pressure. Like, did you feel any imposter syndrome because this sort of happened to you when you were so young? The press stuff was so much. And looking back on it, I think it was way too much pressure. And I think it, there are just so many things that I wish we could have changed about that moment in time for the brand because I think it became so much about how we were being perceived by like a lot of media reporters and a lot of people outside of our demographic and and we took our eye off the ball of what really needed um, working on, which was still the content and the staff. And speaking personally, I will say that like this sense of like we had to grow and we had to be a bigger website and we had to be bigger than Glamour and we had to be bigger than the other brands in the house. Like the corporate pressure, I think, to be bigger and grow and grow and grow came at the detriment of the mental health and stability of our employees, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lesson that I now take and and will not let and allow myself to repeat. Um, But I wish I would have had that foresight back then, right? And and maybe more years of managerial experience would have helped me see that then. But uh, we were insatiable to always be the best and always be pushing the envelope. And I think um, it stopped being the organic, like, slightly rogue, like, cute little editorial meeting that turned into this big story. And it started being, what are we going to do next, Mm. right? And it's kind of like the minute you get into this atmosphere of, like, what's going to hit and how are we going to hit it, um, it takes away the soul of it. So you helped revamp Team Vogue, and then you started them from scratch. And then you made the choice to go to Out, which has been around for like 27 years. Mm-hmm. So what made you decide to make the leap from starting your own thing to taking over this publication that's been around for a long time? You know, when we pitched them and when I was in the process of creating this idea for it, We had really grand ambitions for what the project could be. What ended up happening was the marketplace and media started changing really, really fast. 
And so from the time that I had pitched the project to even six months later, the landscape at Condé Nast was looking radically different. And I started to realize that maybe this commitment um, to growing the brand wasn't going to be possible because, um, and, and I started to get very nervous with no real um, assurance that could be offered to me by anyone who had initially backed the project. Do you feel like that experience with like starting a queer publication within this like sort of large conglomerate kind of thing, did that change for you what like how you think about the ability of like queer stories to matter within those spaces? Like do you think they can anymore or just do you feel like that sort of knocked that out of you, that belief that they can? I think that this is a great question, and we go so back and forth on this too, even in in the way that we talk to each other as editors at Out. I think the great thing about Out is that it's assumed that everyone's queer, (laughs) and you have to explain if they're not. You have to explain why they're there, Um, or at least we feel (laughs) that that's the case. (laughs) Um, And in any mainstream publication, you know, that's writing about a queer narrative or a queer story— Being queer often has to be the headline or it has to be laboriously explained. And you cannot guarantee that you're going to have a queer editor, um, a queer editor-in-chief, or someone who's like native to your story who's handling it when it goes through the editing process or the fact-checking process, right? Um, And so that's kind of the nice and liberating thing about not having to appeal to everyone the way that mainstream media does if they talk about queer stories. I do think that mainstream media representation is deeply important for queer people and and for anyone who's been excluded from those narratives before. Um, But I do think that there's distinct and unique value in queer media telling queer stories. Mm. I mean, just as like a looking forward thing, like what are you hoping to see more in queer media I'm hoping that we survive. Um, I think, you know, what we're seeing is that as queerness enters the mainstream, so as things like Drag Race happen and DragCon becomes overrun by, like, you know, predominantly straight teenage girls, which is great. You know, I, I want the drag queens to have big fandoms, and I want that success for them more than anything. There's a question of why we need to still be here, right? That isn't the true progress only when a drag queen is on the cover of Vogue or Vanity Fair. Mm. And it may be true that being on the cover of Vogue or Vanity Fair is a kind of honor um, that the world recognizes in a way that they don't recognize the cover of Out. But Out means something personally to people and to a community of people that Vogue and Vanity Fair honestly may never, right? That there's that kind of connection that you have when something is created for you and feels tailor-made for your life experiences that those magazines don't have the power to convey. And so we have a responsibility to figure out how to keep queer media alive as a community, as the people who work for these brands, and, you know, as the people who are who are consuming the content. Um, you know, my hope is that we are able to survive, that, you know, sites like Into do not have to close, um, that Autostraddle grows bigger and bigger and bigger, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that hopefully the corporate media entities who wanted to create Um, queer media platforms maybe find a way to support independent queer media um, in a way that's a little bit more organic and better rather than hopefully cannibalizing the market. So after we taped this conversation with Philip, Women's Wear Daily published an article detailing a long history of Out Magazine not paying contributors for their work. In some cases, people have been waiting years for payment. And it's complicated because it's not entirely clear who's responsible for paying those contributors. 
A company called Pride Media recently bought the magazine. They were the ones who hired Philip. And they say it's the previous owners who owe freelancers their money. The previous owner says it's Pride. So there's a lot of confusion about who needs to pay up. Philip says that he and his staff are also confused. Before the whole thing blew up publicly, Philip says they sent a letter to the magazine's new owners asking that they be clear on when these freelancers would be paid. But when we called Philip to talk about the situation, he said there's not much more that he can do at this point. As the editorial team, you know, I don't have control over accounts payable, right? It's like a very separate and siloed Mm -hmm. operation. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the pickle that we are in. I think the one thing that I do want to say is that based on conversations that I've had with executives um, both today and yesterday, and, and especially after the letter was immediately sent to the executive team last week, um, I do believe that the people who are owed money are going to be paid. Um, and I believe that there will be transparency coming down the pipeline. Um, and we will be continuing to hold them accountable to make that information accessible. Um, and we'll be continuing to stand in solidarity with the people um, who went unpaid by this magazine for what um, appears to have been um, a very long time. Um, and we want to stop that cycle now. So you coming into out, you know, you really pointedly wanted to change up the voice of the magazine and have more POC voices, more gender inclusivity. Um, and I'm wondering, like, how are you planning to get people to trust that out isn't a place that's going to exploit their labor? You know, the best thing I can do right now is make sure we can, that pride, and I'm holding pride accountable to make good on their promises to pay people what they are rightfully owed. Um, And then after that, you know, as far as we are all concerned as an organization, right, and our editors are concerned, it's a period of, of necessary rebuilding that we're basically going to have to do. And we thought that the debut issue was going to be a signal of that. Um, and now what we're realizing is, you know, much to our disappointment and dismay, because we worked really hard on this and we all came to the table to make this happen and, and make magic happen, um, is basically that we um, are having to start at, um, at step one all over again. Um, and, and our reputations as employees and our reputations as journalists and as bosses and managers are not indicative of this pattern of behavior, and we find it reprehensible. And so we have to figure out what that means for our place in the company um, as we as we continue to to make the magazine and make the website. Well, um, Philip, thank you for making time to take this call and and to respond. Thanks so much. Of course. Right, that is our show. Credits time. Producer. Alice Wilder. Production fellow. Temi Fugbenle. Editor. Stephanie Joyce. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Executive producer. Paula Schumann. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Tu. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. thing that our producer Alice noticed is you went in an incredible ensemble and you still wore an Apple watch. Uh, that is so rude. And Alice. so 
the you better question get your ass in here, Alex. I want to talk to you about this in person. Yeah, the the question is basically, how dare you? How dare I, Alex? Wow, Alex, you might need to stand up. I was dragged on Twitter after the interview hit. I was filthily dragged, and only by homos. People were like, "You made it to the Met Gala, bitch, and you were an Apple Watch." Like, I was, I was like, "I forgot to take it off." It feels like an appendage. Like when I have to take it off at night, I actually get nervous because, I, like I told you, I'm super competitive.